This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 82 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Colleen Kinder. She's the editor of the online literary journal Off Assignment, and she has a new book out. It's a volume of essays from her journal's flagship column, Letter to a Stranger. The book is also called Letter to a Stranger, Essays to the Ones Who Haunt Us. It's a wonderful anthology packed with 65 essays, 65 letters to strangers from around the world. Every continent gets touched in this volume, including Antarctica. In addition to the book, we talk about the importance of voice in writing, writing prompts, travel media, the book form, especially compared to online reading, and her online journal and how Pico Iyer inspired its creation. As you'll hear, Colleen is so generous, and there's a lot packed into this episode. I'll just say here, too, that the audio is a little wonky in the first few moments of the interview, but it does get better. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a reminder to share the podcast with your friends on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Colleen Kinder. Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So where are you at in the world right now? I am currently in my childhood home in Buffalo, New York, after a long journey back from Egypt, uh, from Luxor, Egypt, where my husband worked for six months out of the year. Oh gosh, you spend a lot of time in Egypt? We do. Yeah. I would say, you know, cumulatively now, maybe a couple years of my life Um, during the pandemic, you know, there was, there was no work assignment in Luxor. But other than that, for the past few years, I've been traveling to Luxor with Owen for between two to five months per year. Oh, wow. Well, the reason why I invited you on the podcast today is to talk about uh, this new collection of essays you have called Letter to a Stranger, which comes from your online literary journal, Off Assignment, which I've read, I've been a long time reader, so I'm kind of uh, excited to, to speak with you. And I'll just say, like, I, I've kind of put together some um, some drafts, <laughs> letters of strangers that have never mustered the courage to send them off. But so, Oh, you should send them. I'm Come like a little fanboy here speaking with the, <laughs> with the editor. But it's it's great. Um, the, the Lit Mag, uh, the online journal off assignment, if I'm kind of expressing this correctly, mm-hmm. it seeks to kind of like publish the stories behind the stories, I guess, like the experiences that mm-hmm. journalists and writers um, that never appear for whatever reason in, in a commissioned story. Is, is that, I guess, a fair assessment? 
that's a great and very succinct assessment. I'm going to, I'm going to copy you <laughs> and use that myself. And it's, it's so great to hear that you've been a longtime reader of Off Assignment. Thank you for sharing that. It's very gratifying to hear. One never knows who's out there reading. Right. Yeah. yeah but so now I'm, I'm also like really happy to see um, the letters to a stranger uh, column on your website published in book form, because I think, you know, there's something special about the book form. It gives us permission to to get lost in it. So I'm, I'm really excited to see this, um, which comes out March 2022 is when we're recording this, but it comes out later this month. Is that right? Yes, it comes out a week from yesterday. So very soon, very soon. Okay, cool. So like, I guess uh, to, to start, um, before we start talking about the book, maybe you can, um, I guess, tell us a little bit more about your online lit journal off assignment. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, I will say I completely agree with you that there's something really special about the book form. And I think one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that this column will have a life in print um, is just because I think we approach literature that's in print so differently. And we grant ourselves permission to really hunker down with it and go places with it and we're more defended against distraction right. when we have a book in our hands than we are when we have our own in our hands. And um, I started off assignment online because that was practically speaking the best way forward. I had this mm -hmm. idea that very often the best stories that we gather while we are on assignment as journalists are the stories that we didn't expect to find and the stories that sort of find us when we're looking for things and stranger stories are like a whole species of story within, within that overarching theme of off assignment stories. But many of my peers in the travel writing world and in the journalism realm were very enthusiastic about this idea and willing to contribute stories for free before we had any funding. Um, and there was great momentum, but, but no way that I could, you know, put together a, a book uh, out of thin air at that point in time. We really needed proof of concept. We needed momentum. We needed to grow our audience. And the cost of a print magazine or, you know, putting out a print book is, is really prohibitive um, unless you have a huge cache of, of funding. Right. So, right. Uh, so we got started. We launched Letter to a Stranger as a column online under the banner of the literary magazine off assignments. And gradually we started adding in other columns that are kind of kindred columns to that are to a stranger, but with a different focus. They're all really, I would say, writing prompt based. So they give the writer a very specific narrative container and narrative challenge. Like for example, write an essay about a word in a foreign language that doesn't translate well into your native language that you find interesting and kind of try to give people parameters for their stories and limits for their stories as well. I mean, a lot of our columns are quite short, so they really focus the writer on one particular facet of a journey, which I really appreciate as a writer myself, because I very often come home from global journeys feeling like I have so much and I can get lost in the infinitude of material that one gathers when one's in reporting mode. So I think some of these columns are 
very like intentionally focused and, and mm-hmm. limited in their scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate the, the shorter length. There's a lot that can be packed into, to such a short, I guess, container, small container. Um, and it's an interesting exercise to do. Does this come out of maybe your work with your teaching work with Yale? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say that this publication is very much informed by my experience in the classroom and, and very specifically the phenomenon that I know any teachers who are listening out there will relate to, which is when you give writing students a prompt mm-hmm. and like a very, very specific one, specific to the point that it might feel constraining to them. Like, for example, I have challenged my writing students to write about a childhood memory set in a car. It sounds like almost like you're trying to straitjacket them (laughs) narratively, um, like it must take place in a vehicle. But what I found is that students, young writers, novice writers, people who are, are, are green to nonfiction storytelling do a phenomenal job and come out with really authentic, rich, highly specific and evocative stories when you give them these challenges that, that many of us call writing prompts. And I honestly was jealous of my students very often when I would do this because they could come out with some of their best work, like on the spot, literally. I mean, sometimes I would give these as homework assignments and then the next day or the next week they would turn something in. But very often I would give out these challenges while we were together in class and give people five to 10 minutes and then have people read what they wrote on the spot. And consistently I was astonished by the output mm-hmm. um, and not just by, you know, the, the, the two or three most extraordinary writers in the group. There was something about writing prompts that elicited great stories from everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think I reached a point in my teaching life where I thought to myself, well, why, why are these just in the province of the classroom? Why not walk them outside into the professional world and give professional writers the same kind of mandates and see what happens? And I think I've discovered that professional writers, very seasoned and experienced people really appreciate the same kind of limitations Mm -hmm. and specificity when they get a writing assignment. Mm. I would also say here that good questions often elicit good responses. And uh, some of these questions that you um, ask or these prompts on off assignment um, kind of lend themselves to kind of more interesting, introspective responses. But you, you mentioned that your students, you know, some of their best works came out of these prompts and that you were astonished by them. Um, what was astonishing? Were they like vulnerable and intimate and, and um, mm. kind of like nuanced or what was That's special? a great question. Well, I think for starters, they sounded like themselves. I think that there's a tendency when you're just starting out as a writer to, to maybe write in a way that's overly grandiose or to, to write in a way that you think you should write as opposed to mm-hmm. just talking to the page, you know, and yeah. really sounding like the unique individual that you are. 
And I think there's something disarming about being put right to work and not being given the chance to plan an essay and think about your heroes and get intimidated <laughs> by your audience. Like you just, you just put your head down. And I think it's um, in the same way that sometimes getting like a, a candid letter from somebody in your life can, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience where somebody writes us an email or an old fashioned letter and they just sound, the writing feels so beautiful and worth hanging on to and rereading, but in large part, because they just really sound so utterly like themselves. And, and that really is voice, right? It's, it's like a confident deployment of our, of our uniqueness, right? Like we, we all are such unique individuals, but very often in our less than great writing, we sound more generic. We sound like everyone else. Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes these writing prompts can really kind of unfetter the writer and make them just let out the thing that they have inside them without dressing it up too much, mm -hmm. without overthinking it. Uh, and I also think that the specificity of the prompt imposes specificity on the writing, right? Like it's not write a letter about a trip you took. It's write a letter to a stranger you met who's had a lasting impact on you that doesn't quite make sense, right? Like you kind of have to write to figure out why is that person so abiding in my memory mm -hmm. or write, um, you know, I've had students write about um, a scene in their childhood doctor's office. And that, again, it's so hyper-specific, but, um, but it really pushes them to hunker down in a very, a very discreet memory from childhood and to think about, okay, what was in my childhood doctor's office. Like if, if I challenge them to write about some sort of medical experience in childhood, I might get a lot of kind of flat writing or sweeping statements about their struggles. But instead I'm seeing like the goldfish tank in the corner of somebody's upper peninsula of Michigan <laughs> doctor's office. You know, <laughs> it's like, it makes them, it makes them be loyal to the particulars in a way that might not be their first instinct. They might not yeah. think those things are that interesting, but those are the kinds of details that often like really demand that the reader imagines something in their mind's eye, which makes all the difference, right? Like if we are really imagining somebody else's world when we're reading, as opposed to just thinking like we know what they're telling us, um, then we're so much more transported and we, we leave our own lives for a second and, and find our way into another life. Right. Yeah. This, the, the question's great. It seems like it's um, a good prompt to kind of like strip the ego away into, to, to tap, tap in, um, into, you know, the expertise that we all have with our own experience and, and to, to really, you know, strip away like the per performative aspect of writing, mm -hmm. you know, to, to write in someone else's voice. We, you know, by this introspective, I guess, or this interesting prompt where we're forced to take an inward turn and, and, you know, kind of 
uncover what has been kind of latent uh, within us. Mm. You know, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but. Absolutely. No, that's a, that's an awesome way to put it. And, you know, I wasn't thinking in terms of the ego, but I think that's exactly what I was circling around. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And I think it's also just really exciting. I don't know. Have you, have you ever taught before? Yeah. I'm a, t- I'm a teacher at a community college. Great. Great. Yeah. Like, isn't it just so gratifying when you see students look at you after you've given them an assignment and they're like, what in the world? <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, they end up coming out with something that has surprised them. Like they, they didn't know it was there, but it in fact very much was and expresses a an important piece of their life. I just find that a really kind of sublime (laughs) pedagogical experience. That's a good way to put it. You get, you get high on the feeling of, you know, seeing students, you know, the stars align in their minds and things click together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have a spring in your step after class. Oh, I certainly do. Um, you talk about um, the the kind of like the genesis of off assignment and the introduction of this new book, and it's also on the website. It's kind of a, a well known story, um, and it involves Pico Iyer, one of um, my favorite authors. And um, for for listeners who who may not know this story, can you can you tell us about um, how Pico Iyer fits into off assignment? Sure. Yeah. Well, I met Pico Iyer. Years ago, when I was in grad school, he gave a keynote address at a conference at my grad school, University of Iowa. And I was, you know, of course, a huge fan of his and really moved by what he said. And I did that bold grad school thing where you like hang around after a talk and try to meet <laughs> meet the author. And, you know, he's such a lovely, gracious human being. And um, eventually I did get to thank him. And specifically, I connected with him on Cuba, a place we both have spent quite a lot of time and really loved because he had mentioned Cuba in his, in his speech. And he ended up asking me where the library was on campus because he is an old fashioned human being who doesn't carry around a smartphone. I don't think this could have changed, but I don't, I don't know that it has. Um, And he needed to go find some internet. So I walked him to the library and, and we really connected and I ended up emailing him and asking for his mailing address. And we started like a, a, a proper pal, pen pal correspondence mm. and have sent each other lots of long letters over the years from many, many different places. And he's become, he's become a very good friend and just, just a real kindred spirit. Um, I think there's a connectivity between us that is about travel, but it's, it's also very much about, um, I guess, solitude and writing and love for the epistolary mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. canon, all sorts of things. But anyways, I really wanted to have him as a guest at my travel writing class at Yale. And it was kind of a long shot because he's he's not based in the States. He's based in Japan, but very often travels to the U.S. So I got I was able to get some funding to bring him to campus and I hosted him for a small seminar And, you know, I was all set to like ask him lots of questions about his craft and really burrow into the details of his process and his research. I mean, his essays are always very impressively researched. So I I wanted to talk about that. I had like my whole teacherly agenda. And when he came to class, 
he really just took over <laughs> as he does. <laughs> yes. Oh, and I just sat back in awe and he started telling these candid stories about the reporting trips that he went on years ago. And specifically, he told us an anecdote about a trip he took to Iceland um, over 20 years ago and about an Icelandic stranger that he'd met while he was reporting for Time Magazine, who he spent these really invigorated hours with, walking the streets with her, connecting on, on lots of different fronts. And it wasn't a romantic connection. You know, nothing happened between these two people, but it was a, a really extraordinary connection. And over 20 years later, when he went to talk about that reporting trip to Iceland, she was the one who rose to the surface and she was the focus of his storytelling. And I was really curious whether he'd ever written about her because she seemed so salient in his memories. Mm -hmm. And when he said no, that he'd never written about her, it, it awoke maybe not a sense of injustice in me, but kind of a sense of like, Whoa, something here isn't right. This doesn't make sense. Pico wire is a widely admired travel writer that probably gets approached all the time to write about things. Why? And, and can pitch probably whatever he wants to write about. Why isn't this story in print somewhere? There must not be a home for stories like this. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when I circled back to him and kind of presented this idea of an off assignment platform, he was very interested in writing an essay about this woman and he was, he did do that for us. And it was one of our kind of inaugural, or I would say seminal stories for a column called Behind the Feature. Mm -hmm. And Pico really was, Pico really was kind of like the person who flicked on the lights for me and left me with this idea that there was something missing on the travel writing landscape. Like there was, there was a, there was a gap and I got idealistic about filling it and um, <laughs> really found there were so many other people who rose up and affirmed this idea and helped me get it started. And, you know, my original idea was to have like a, almost like a collective of travel writers that were all behind this. And one by one, they kind of kindly told me like, you know, if you really believe in this, you need to, you need to just take the helm because Right. I don't have time. I have kids, whatever. Like, you know, people, people were very helpful, but also I had to eventually come around to the idea that the only way it was going to happen was if I threw myself into it more fully um, and, yeah. and rose to like a, a leadership position. But, and Lavinia Spalding was one of these people, a wonderful travel writer, Ralph Potts, Leslie Jameson, um, Julia Cook. Dave Farley, just some really wonderful Marcia DeSanctis, who's writing. I've just come to absolutely love. She's a gorgeous. She's coming out. Travel essay collection coming out. Yeah. Yes, it's unbelievable. I can't recommend it more highly. Yeah, it's there were there were so many wonderful people who kind of rallied around this moment and this idea and gave of themselves to it. But Pico was definitely the spark. Mm -hmm. You'd mentioned that there was something missing in the, I, I guess, travel writing landscape and, you know, the stories in Letter to a Stranger and Off Assignment 
are, are stories that we would never read in the travel glossies or at least what's left of them. You know, I don't know why they're more interesting and they're more enduring, but I was just wondering, like, what do you have any, I guess, inclinations why these stories aren't being told in mainstream travel journalism? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I'll say a few things. One is that I think a lot of these essays lend attention to quiet moments mm-hmm. and not like the big, loud story or set of facts around which you can base your next travel itinerary. You know, they're not they're not practically useful mm-hmm. in for the consumer. They are beautiful and they are transcendent and they are I've seen them. I've seen them exert tremendous power on readers, but they don't set you up well for your next trip to France. Right? <laughs> they, they don't have like a set of instructions laden in them as to how to navigate an unfamiliar world. Um, there's a spirit you can emulate, of course, but but there isn't that practical utility. And I think that, you know, we, the fact that we don't advertise on alpha assignment is a choice uh, to hold true to our principles as a, as a nonprofit and really just put forth in front of people, these wonderful stories and not clog the screen or their social media feed with, with advertisements for things that people are paying us to run. But if I did tomorrow decide that we needed advertising revenue for this organization, like, you know, who would I go to Moleskin? Right. <laughs> I, I couldn't go to a bunch of, a bunch of cruise ship companies. I, I don't think, um, because these, these aren't stories that have that kind of commercial value. I, I will say, I think office assignment is especially popular among literary readers who have a passion for travel, but that's, that's a smaller niche than, than the niche that travel and leisure is catering to or, um, Nash traveler. So, uh, so it's, it's a smaller audience, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but another thing I will say is that the first time I wrote for a far magazine, uh, it was years after I, started off assignments. And there was a part of me that was like, wow, if I'd written for Aislinn Green, my editor at Afar years ago, I might never have had the set of frustrations that led me to found off assignment or co-found off assignment with Vince Errico, because Aislinn really gave me so much room to use my creativity, to write about what I didn't see coming. You know, I needed to present her with a full plan for what I was going to do in Eastern Canada and what I was going to focus on, but what I ultimately turned into her as a feature story and what I shaped with her was definitely full of unexpected turns and lots of encounters with strangers. So I do think there are good magazines and good editors out there who are leaving writers space to do these things. And, you know, if our magazine is very well-funded and it is, I would say fairly mainstream, um, I mean, I think they have a pretty big readership. So I think I want to credit the folks that are pulling off this really difficult thing of 
reaching a large audience, but also holding space for really subtle, original and digressive storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. is what you say here about the kind of commercial quality of some of the mainstream publications, um, which is, I guess, like, and, and the online publications as well. Um, it, it, I guess this makes sense, um, I guess, um, why these essays are so good in the book form um, is that they're, they're meant to, for someone to spend some time with without, as you mentioned earlier, any of these distractions, without thinking about how this might be useful, that it can be beautiful and that can be enough uh, in, in literature. You know, for us to just sit back with a book and enjoy it, or, or an essay and enjoy it for the sake of enjoying it or the sake of the essay itself. I think that that should be enough. And we get that with books. And I think I find personally, I find it hard to kind of enjoy uh, doing a lot of reading uh, online. I feel the same way. I really do. It's just not as joyful. It doesn't give me the same degree of satisfaction. I don't have this like bodily sense that I'm treating myself to mm-hmm. language and stories that I do when I sit in bed with a novel or, you know, take a printout of a private editing client's manuscript somewhere. Like I just, um, print just puts me in a different, puts me in a different headspace. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, as I chat with you, the more I think about this question of like utility versus beauty. And I think that, you know, although these essays, like I said, they're not filled with instructions about how to take a trip somewhere. And that isn't going to be the primary motivation for anyone who moves through the book. Like they'll, you know, the essays are set all over the world in an amazing array of locations, but you know, they're not going to flip to the story in Kampala, Uganda, because that's where they're going next. I don't think, I, I think it's probably more, they just move through freely and, um, probably, you know, the first essays they'll read will be the ones by the writers they know because they want to see how that writer responded to the prompt. But all that said, I mean, I also think that one of the gifts of these essays is just like sheer human wisdom. Like I learned a lot from reading them. They're, they're pretty replete with insights and hard earned wisdom about human nature. I think that these, the writers in the book are pretty soulful creatures. And I think embedded in each essay is some kind of insight about the self, about what makes people tick, about what happens when we slow down. I mean, yeah. all sorts of things. Um, and I, I often think of them. I mean, the, the, the driving question of the book is who haunts you. Um, and so the essays are, you know, these stories about these strangers, but I think one of the things I love about it is that the reader ends up being haunted by certain moments in these essays. And I I certainly feel that myself. There's one essay in the book. That's a letter to a man who stalked the writer, Rachel Yoder, when she was in high school. Mm. And, you know, whenever I hear a story about a stalker now, I, I will just always be parachuted back into the particulars of Rachel Yoder's essay, because that's a human experience I haven't had. And the way she articulated the sensation of being stalked was, I'm going to use the word life-changing or perspective. I'll say maybe perspective shifting for me, because 
I just could not have understood what it was like to be stalked without her guiding me through that moment and those sensations of realizing that this recurring figure in her day when she was a teenager in Ohio was intentionally stalking her. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there are all sorts of human experiences that are just so well rendered and these crisp moments of realization that are just deftly drawn and articulated that I do think can really offer something to the reader, not about how to take a trip to France, but just about how to live better and how to read your surroundings. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of um, Lauren Groff's essay as well, where she uh, recounts the story about meeting an older gentleman in Italy and he invites her to his house. And if I'm reading this essay correctly or remembering it correctly, um, it's, it, it's an essay that remains unresolved um, Mm -hmm. and it reflects back on, you know, what it's like to be a naive child and, you know, where someone could go wrong in, in, in a life. And, you know, there's short essays like this, but they're full of questions and reflections and provocations um, that, that make them so interesting. So um, let me ask you this then, um, from the editor's standpoint, but also from a reader's standpoint, what makes a good letter to a stranger? <sighs> can, you, well, can, can you wrap that up or is it? Yeah. Well, if it's fair, I will draw on experience of reading many, many essays that ultimately weren't published for the letter to a stranger column and essays that, that didn't quite come to fruition and make it, make it into this book. This book has 65 essays, but behind that 65, which 65 is a very big number Mm -hmm. for a book. I'm so lucky that the essays are short, so I could include that many. Um, And it's such a phenomenal tribe of, of writers in this book, but behind that 65, you know, there are, many years of publishing this column and also even more essays that never made it into the column that were rejected from the column. So, I mean, I will say that very often, well, I think there needs to be an authentic drive to say something that has yet to be expressed to a person who has vanished. Um, And yes, you know, Lauren Groff isn't actually writing to that man in France or to that man in Italy. She's not writing to the stranger she met, but she has a set of lasting sentiments and questions for that person that have never been put forth. And the letter is the way that she's going to put those things forth. Mm -hmm. And so I think there has to be a really genuine desire there to convey something has been bottled up. Mm -hmm. But on a more practical level, I think a letter to a stranger really needs to start off strong from the very beginning. Um, There's a lot that has to happen in a first paragraph of one of these missives. And um, the best essays make that work invisibly. Like you don't even realize how much you're taking in in that first paragraph because the writer is guiding you through at the perfect tempo and 
with a strong voice and making you care from the beginning. And, you know, when I think about it, like, okay, in, in the opening of a letter to a stranger essay, the stranger needs to be introduced. The writer needs to be introduced. We need to know where in the world we are. We need to know why this fleeting connection matters, or at least we, we at least need to be like put on the scent of that question of why it matters. So that's a lot to pull off from the get-go. I mean, if you think about a standard memoir, I mean, all that really happens to, needs to happen in the first paragraph is just the writer needs to captivate you with their voice. You know, it's really, <laughs> it, it's, it's more straightforward, but these are the, the stack of, of challenges, narrative challenges is pretty high in the beginning. And not that that's something I want people to think about when they first draft their letter to a stranger, because again, I think writing from a calm, egoless, unpressurized place is probably the healthiest. But when you go back and you're revising, I think a lot of revision attention needs to be put on the way the essays open. And the last thing I will say is that I think these do need to be fairly brief. I think it's hard to sustain the second person and the letter form for longer than 1500 words. Um, And we've had some great essays that are longer than that, that are just painful to cut because every sentence seems to really warrant its place. And it just feels, um, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of Corinne Clevidence's letter to a stranger uh, that was set in Antarctica. Um, I remember cutting some sentences in there that were just recommending that they were cut. I, I was more of a behind the scenes editor on that piece. Uh, Lenora Todaro was the main editor, but recommending like a few sentences or even a full paragraph were cut just because it was just feeling long. Like I think a letter, if it's too essayistic and like maybe too descriptive, like the reader starts to wake up and be like, hmm, this isn't a letter. (laughs) (laughs) um, And of course we know it's not really a letter that's sent in the mail, but I think it's helpful when the scale of the essay is kind of in line with what you would imagine someone drafting if they just sat down to write a letter. Mm-hmm. Which is all, which is another way also to say that it's, it's, it's about feeling <laughs> and it's just something mm. so hard to quantify, Yeah, you know, what makes yeah. something good. It's just, it touches me. That's, that's a good enough. That's all I can give you. <laughs> it's just good. Yeah. You know? Right. And I'm, I'm sure you've had the experience of like giving a, a writer feedback where you just, have to unfortunately like a student you have to unfortunately like write in the margin the place where something starts to feel long and i think it's okay to even use that language even if it's unsatisfactory to the student who wants to understand why like sorry this just this just did start to feel too long mm-hmm. um it's it's an intuitive thing mm-hmm. did did you find that um any tropes emerged amongst all of the essays that you've received? Well, I would say that it definitely came to my attention that there was a whole school of letter to stranger essays that were fundamentally driven by gratitude, like a, a desire to say thank you for something that had stayed with the author. And I think, um, you know, many of these essays are, are, travel essays and written by 
people who were spending time in an unfamiliar environment, which means they were vulnerable, which means they didn't know the rules, which means they screwed up a lot. And, you know, my experience of living abroad is that in whatever language you're living, you use the word for thank you far more than you use the word for you're welcome. Like I was just, (laughs) when I was just in Egypt, I remember like just so distinctly the moments when it actually was like my turn to say Afwan, which is you're welcome. And to just realize, oh my God, it's so disproportionate. The number of times I'm thanking an Egyptian as opposed to saying you're welcome to their thank you. And so I think that was, that's definitely a trend. Um, and which isn't to say it's a bad thing. I mean, I think that the gratitude section of the book is extraordinary. I mean, some of Maron Hedero's essay about uh, seller of film in Ethiopia is there. Um, Monet Thomas's thank you to a pharmacist in Beijing, which is such a stunning essay. I just adore it is in that section. There are some phenomenal gratitude driven essays. Um, but it was important to me as I was shaping this book to have lots of different chambers within the essay and to really have a breadth of stranger experiences in the book. So, you know, there's a section that's about remorse um, or like some sort of what ties those essays together is some sort of regret about the way you engaged with a stranger or the thing you didn't get to say to that person. Um, And also there's a category for wonder, what I, the, the section is called wonder and it's for experiences of awe loosely defined. Some of them are, are more, um, I guess, romantic than others, like, you know, romanticizing a stranger and being in awe of them, but also kind of being shocked by the thing that they do. And, uh, that essay, that section of the book has quite a wide gamut of, of narratives. Mm -hmm. So there's a few, um, I guess some of these sections in the book, symmetry, mystery, chemistry, gratitude, wonder, remorse, and farewell. These are very loosely some of the the major tropes that you've found in the essays. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't even call them tropes. I would call them like maybe threads or um, kind of kinds of kinship or conversations because for example, in the goodbye section, um, I wouldn't say that those, what connects those writers is a certain trope, but in their, in their story, but a certain weight or tone, those are some of the weightiest essays in the book. They are a sentiment maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The sentiment, um, or kind of maybe register, like Mm. there's an essay that, uh, Carlin Houghton wrote to, a baby that she miscarried, which is one of the letter to stranger essays that has most kind of haunted me and and really punched me in the gut. Um, That essay is alongside the Rachel Yoder essay that I, or it's in the same chamber as the Rachel Yoder essay I mentioned about the stalker and um, Akemi Johnson wrote a gorgeous, gorgeous essay to a poet who she was supposed to meet in Japan when she was living abroad there who ended up um, getting lost on a hike and and he was never found. So it's, there is 
there's a real kind of gravity to those essays that made me feel like they should come late in the book and also should have the chance to kind of sit alongside each other for the reader. And, and I think, um, they also just enabled me to end the book on a strong note. I wanted, I wanted it to be really, really powerful all the way through, but there's also in those essays, at least most of them, I would say kind of purgative impulse of like, okay, these are my last words to this, this stalker. These are my last words to the poet I never met. These are my last words to the DHL motorcycle driver who gave me a ride on my last night in Caracas, right? Like there's, there's some sort of finality to them. And I thought that would be a really powerful way to end a book. Yeah. And a powerful way to end uh, a conversation on a podcast. (laughs) So uh, Colleen, uh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you and Likewise, likewise. I, I love Such this a book. I'm so happy that it's in a book form. Um, so uh, oh, what, a, what a pleasure to, to speak with you. And I wish you um, best of luck with, with this and everything else uh, you got going on. By the way, do you want to give us any insight into what, what's going on in the future for you? Well, thank you so much for reading the book and bringing so much attention to it. It's so gratifying to have these conversations about it. What is going on right now? Well, I am after this book launch, I'm going to be hunkering down to have a baby. So that's a totally different congratulations (laughs) experience. There is a stranger inside my body right now. who I'm very (laughs) curious to meet. Um, Write them a letter. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I should. Oh my, that's a great idea. Yeah. So this summer will be after all the book lunch. Hullabaloo. uh, I will be turning my attention to my family for mm. a good chunk of time. And I have, uh, I've just finished a manuscript of a memoir about teaching at sea. I taught on the semester at sea voyage back in 2015 and wrote and wrote and wrote about it for about seven years and finally have, uh, completed a manuscript that I'm waiting for my agent's feedback on that. Um, hopefully is as close to done as I think it is, (laughs) but I'm ready to hear otherwise and to have to go back to the drawing board. But, um, but I think I've, I've finally gotten it to the place I was hoping to get it to. Well, that's exciting. And when, well, keep us, uh, keep me informed about what happens with this book. Maybe we'll have a other opportunity to speak in a few years. about Mm, That would be dreamy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Colleen. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support. 